You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to The Fabulous Invalid, Broadway's podcast, where we present essential conversations with a curated roster of the best, most important, and innovative theater makers working today, from actors to writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. We took our name from the title of a 1938 play by Kaufman and Hart that has since become a loving nickname for Broadway itself, always deemed on the verge of decline, yet always bouncing back, The Fabulous Invalid. I'm theater savant Jamie Dumont. And I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with StageLeft.nyc and StageLeft, the podcast. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jamie. List show. It's our favorite type of show. You know? Oh, it's like <laughs> Christmas and our birthdays combined. Absolutely. You, you always say that. It's always Christmas. You know, I like Christmas. I think yeah, that's look, who I doesn't think like Christmas? That's know? an established fact. I, yeah, I think yeah. it's a... It's a happy day. I like Thanksgiving too. But you know what I like better? A list show. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, we were thinking about the title of our show, The Fabulous Invalid, um, and how it's like just become so relevant for the times that we're living through. Um, you know, and beyond that, just how, you know, Broadway itself has always been host to, you know, just gigantic flops and big, big hits. And that dichotomy is just so fascinating to, to explore. Well, I think it's one of the reasons that we love theater. It's yeah. an ever-changing art form. It's um, it's never boring, except for <laughs> when it is, and uh, and it and it has a rich, fascinating history. And unlike most histories, I feel like the theater learns from its past mistakes. I mean, they repeat them every so often, <laughs> which is basically the whole premise Theme. of our show yeah. today. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. But 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 we can in the theater be taught, um, which is a nice thing. But um but not with these 10 shows. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, so we 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 decided it would be fun to close our season off by um curating our own list of um 10 of those those flops and hits. Uh so we could delve into the history a bit, nerd out some and just, you know, have a reason to talk about them. Um, so I guess we should note at the top that we decided to focus on musicals only. And that's not because we don't like a good play. Um, you know, obviously we love a good play, uh, but mainly it was because we thought it'd be fun to interpolate some music into this episode as we always like to do. And there's nothing more fun than delving into recordings of flop shows. 
Are you ready, boys? Everyone hates me, yes, yes. Being the mayor. Well, you know, it's interesting because I've been doing a lot of research and prep for this as, yeah. as you have as well. Um, I, like many other gay men, um, I have quite a few rare recordings. I have quite a few um, soundboard recordings of shows. And I have been listening to, I've <laughs> had the great fortune to listen to every single show except for one um, or two, actually. Uh that we're going to talk about. And so as fun as it's been and as illuminating as it's been, and I've listened to all of them before, but not with <laughs> like with a particular mission, but I am so grateful that this weekend I'll be able to like put on Dear Evan Hansen or, right. Town <laughs> or something that isn't just, you know, really rough on the ears. Oh from yeah. Time to time. Oh, I mean, yeah. There's, there's some real clunkers and there's some real beauty and and you're you'll hear a little of both um in this episode in terms of music that we're going to provide for you well this week and next week we're going to do a two-part episode where we'll look at some of the most notable flops in broadway history and then we'll follow that up by looking at some of the greatest hits that's less fun what <laughs> that, that's less fun i i well we'll see i guess we'll, we'll i shouldn't say that we want do, you to do, tune into both yeah, episodes. Do, do yeah. turn in. They're both going to be great. Gosh, Jamie, you're sabotaging us. Um, well, not, I do not think the first time. <laughs> lest lest uh, we get an inbox full of of, of angry listeners, um, I do think it's important for us to before we dive in, which we're going to do shortly, um, to define our terms, um, especially when we're talking about flops, because you know a flop technically is you know any show that doesn't make back its investment. Um, and that's not particularly useful for us um, in terms of whittling down a list here because that's incredibly common on Broadway. Uh, I think like only 20% of shows on Broadway actually ever recoup. Um, so, you know, if that's your metric, then, you know, 80% of all musicals are flops. <laughs> right, exactly. Wow. You know, yeah. Uh, so we also decided that we would focus on musicals that had short runs, um, which, duh, right? That's what makes them flops. Um, but usually under 100 performances, I think there's only one or two shows on. On our list that violate that hundred performance rule, um, and then you know we also decided to just pick shows that represented a milestone or a moment in the history of musical theater and its creators, um, or that just had some you know lasting cultural impression, such that we you know still speak of it today. So there's there's a real mix of things. Obviously, your favorite flop might be missing from the list, and that's not intentional. It's just because you know we could only talk about so much. <laughs> People only want to listen to us talk for so long, I guess. <laughs> Well, that's true. Well, Rob, we did say 10 shows, but technically it's 11, right? Well, technically it's more than 11, but... <laughs> well, yes, that's this true. Is Jamie's yeah. favorite trick of, uh, of, of making a list of 10 really be a list of 15. You know? uh, or 20, yes. Or 20, I, yeah, I, right. I, yeah, well, but I also have, as I have said to you many times, and I've even said on this show, like, that's the thing about a list. Like, it's ever-changing. If you ask me what my top favorite five musicals are, it's going to change mostly every time you ask me because it's totally. what's in your head. It's what it's where yes. you're, it's where you are in that moment. But at any rate, the first show we're going to talk about, which is the show I'm referencing as show eleven, is obviously Carrie.
you can't talk about flops without first talking about, you know, perhaps the most infamous flop of them all. Yes, books have been written about it. In 1991, uh, Ken Mandelbaum wrote a book called Not Sense Carrie. Uh, and, you know, kind of the thesis of that whole book is that, you know, Carrie is the measure against which all other flops can be compared, right? Um, so we're not technically including it on our 10 because it's sort of like the lens through which we are going to look at all the shows um, that we're going to talk about today. Um, but Carrie, oh my gosh, what a legend. It has such an interesting history, right? Because there was the production at Stratford, um, which what which there's video that exists, so mm-hmm. it, it it does live in the world. You can get a sense of what it was like. There was the Broadway production, and then there was the revival that MCC did, which was a reimagining of the show. Some what twenty five years later, yeah, um, at least, yeah. So it's had a really fascinating history, and it's it's sort of the show that won't die. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think it has a magnificent score, and and I think there's a lot to, there's a lot to unravel with it. I think it's very interesting, um, not only in terms of all the things that they got wrong, but all of the things that they got right. Absolutely. Well, that's the thing that in reading about it, because you know, obviously, I wasn't. Well, I was one. I was I was one years old in 1988 when this when the show ran on Broadway. So, but I wasn't there. Um, but in reading about it, what's so amazing to me is how almost everyone talks about how there were parts of the show that were just so thrilling and so glorious, and that were just right. And then there were parts of the show where you were like cringing, you know. Um, and that's that is, I think, partially what makes it you know, such such a, a legendary show that, that people still talk about, why there's so much lore about it. Um, Terry Teachout, the critic, has a, a, a quote that he uses. I forget who who said it, but he, he's, he said it multiple times on his show, which is, when I don't like something, I ask myself why I love it. Um, and with Carrie, I feel like that there's this like morbid fascination with it because on one level you're like, oh God, what a terrible idea for a musical to take, you know, Stephen King's novel and film and put it on stage as a musical. But then also like how genius and how brilliant and how relevant, you know, the themes of it. Um, and when you listen to that bootleg, which, you know, uh, you can probably find online. I know I, I inherited a copy of, of it from the final performance. You listen to it and there are parts that you're like, oh my God, this is incredible. Yeah. It's, it's thrilling. And as you, as you mentioned, you were one, I was in my early twenties and living in San Francisco, so I did yeah. not see it. Um, yeah. and we, we will, we were, we're going to say all kinds of things about a lot of shows that we never saw, right, but we, right. we did some research and we have informed opinions and we're fairly smart fellow. Well, you're a very smart fellow. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a fairly smart fellow, but we decided to go right to the source and talk yes. to somebody who was actually there. And that person would be Tony award winning actor, singer, and former guest of the show, Betty Buckley. She starred as Mrs. White in that infamous 1988 production on Broadway, and she had some very illuminating things to say. At the inception of it, uh, you know, Dean Pitchford is a very good friend, and Larry Cohen wrote the uh, screenplay of Carrie, and Michael Gore, his partner, 
you know, was the composer. And they all, they called me and said, we've written a great show. We want you to do it of Carrie. And I was so awful in that first phone call. I was, I was very shocked. And I said, why? And they were like, well, because it's a great story. And I, but I didn't, I didn't quite understand how it would lend itself to becoming a musical. So I regret that initial response. Anyway, they offered it to me and uh, we started negotiating and we couldn't come to terms. Um, the, the director, Terry Hands, met with me and he <clears throat> had all kinds of uh, questions, which I just was like kind of taken aback by because I had worked with his associate and his friend, Trevor Nunn. You know, he was at that point the head of the Shakespeare Company, Royal Shakespeare Company, and Trevor had also done that. And so they were very good friends. And so I said, well, if you have questions about who I am as a person, go talk to Trevor. I don't, I don't understand this. So it was not, it just didn't feel like a copacetic beginning. The negotiation basically came to a halt and they moved on to uh, cast Barbara Cook for the the first version at, in Stratford at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And while they were doing that, they called my agent and they asked me if I would fly to London to take over the show. And I, and I said, well, I'd like to see some, you know, a video of it or something. And so they changed their minds. They weren't going to have me come in. Apparently Barbara Cook was very unhappy in the project. And so instead they sent me a video and I thought, hmm, I felt like I had an interpretation to offer to it that could be helpful. Um, I mean, Barbara Cook obviously is, was a glorious singer and a beautiful, beautiful human being, but it was a very um, stationary, if you will. It was, and I, as an actress, was more athletic, I guess one could say. So she left the show. She was not happy. And they were coming into Broadway with this German producer who had produced a lot of um, touring companies of a lot of different musicals. The day before, or a couple of few days before we were to start rehearsals, my agent called and said, look, here's, here's the deal we've got. We have a guarantee of so many weeks. Cause I felt like the show was on shifty grounds, you know? And so I told them, all right, I would come in. He says, cause all these people will be out of work, Betty, if you don't go in. So I said, okay. So I went in and basically I asked them to, cause I'm an acting coach and Lindsay Haightley was making her first, her Broadway debut at 17. And she was a wonderful, gifted talent. So I, I asked them to let me have some alone time with her so we could really bond in the relationship, uh, to just work alone in a rehearsal room with a pianist, uh, you know, rehearsal pianist and Lindsay and me and Terry Hans. And so Terry kindly let me work with her. And basically I just said, look, Lindsay, let's, we're really going to go for some stuff here. So I want you to trust me. I want you to look me in the eye and whatever I give you, I want you to give me back your authentic feelings about that. And let's just have a real give and take uh, relationship and really play some, some uh, hardball tennis. And she w- trusted me, which was a great gift. And so all the mother-daughter scenes we did together in a very improvisational fashion. 
And so we kind of developed all that stuff away from everybody else. And then when the run-throughs began, we brought that style of work to the rehearsal room. The raven came to plague the world. His name was Sin. His name was Sin. His name was Sin. And lust was how the sin began. The sin was man. Well, I understand. The sin was man. God has seen your sinning just beginning. Hooray for your salvation from damnation. We were doing some very realistic, naturalistic work. And I was determined to play this very abusive, dark character to give the play, you know, to give the show the kind of gravitas I thought that it needed and to bring the kind of um, horror aspect to it, to lift it to that place. That scene is just incredibly powerful, where I throw her down into the trap door. We, first of all, we had like a real fight. We would go home from rehearsal every night and share this car, and we would be literally exhausted. Um, you know, it was like a real physical fight. I mean, it was highly choreographed, but it was really uh, intense. And I'll never forget the vision of her when I open the trap door and I'm shoving her down in there. There was a stagehand underneath <laughs> who would catch her and then hold her by her legs while she's scrambling to try to get out of the trap door. And it was such a funny visual to be looking down the trap and see this big burly stagehand holding her up while she's trying to scramble back out of the, out of the trap, you know? Um, and it was all I could do to keep from laughing every night watching that. Uh, yeah, that scene with her was so powerful. Terry hands, I understand had been at a cocktail party prior to this process and someone told him that they thought the show was like Greece and they meant like uh, Greece, the musical. And he thought they meant like Greek tragedy. <laughs> so he had all the kids dressed in togas and the last uh, great visual in the musical was this kind of Aztec white Greek staircase with a red handrail down it. It was glorious to look at. There was a lot of juxtaposition through the show. So there was the authentic mother-daughter relationship that really had some dark, aberrated, emotional, dysfunctional family um, aspects to it. 
and the rest of the show is played kind of uh, superficially and comically somewhat over the top with Greek tragedy costumes from Greece, you know, so things didn't marry up. They didn't, they didn't match, so to speak. It was like two different musicals. So when we opened the first night, Lindsay went on and stopped the show with her first number, which was incredible. And I was backstage and I was like, oh my God, she's like, that's like amazing. I hope my stuff has the same impact. I was really like, what, what's happening here? And so um, all our stuff was like really exciting theater and the audiences went nuts for that. But when we got to the curtain call, it was staged where I'm coming down this. I went up on an elevator behind the Aztec staircase and come down singing this lullaby in what was meant to be my former prom dress when I was a kid. And I'm barefoot and I've got this butcher knife behind my back and I'm singing this lullaby and she is covered in blood. And I meet her halfway on the staircase and <laughs> and then... I comfort her and then stab her. And then she, in before she dies, reaches over and stops my heart with her telekinetic power. So I'm left on the middle of the staircase, a dead person. And she then crawls down the stairs, singing the last few notes, is to die at the bottom of the stairs. And then there's a blackout. And then we rise in the dark. I'm in the middle of the stairs. She's at the bottom. And as the blackout happens, it was the first time I've ever experienced this, the entire audience starts booing as a unified voice. And I was like, what is going on? And she looks back at me in the dark. And I was like, I looked at her and I was like, Lindsay, get up. We've got to take our bow and then we got to get out of here. And so the lights come back up and she we take our bow and as soon as the lights come back up, the entire audience jumps to their feet in this like, you know, the unanimous standing ovation. So it was completely psychotic, you know, the responses of the audience in terms of the visceral booing to the huge cheers and ovations. And that had been so throughout the show. And I remember one night uh, I came to the top of the stairs for this moment and um and this guy and, and people would come in costumes and stuff uh which was great they would talk to us during the show and one guy yells uh at me at the top of the stairs come on down betty buckley <laughs> i was like oh my god you know so it was just wild the audience's response were absolutely wild that's not my name.
after the we, the reviews came out, we went to the party afterwards, and the reviews started coming out. And Frank Rich was the power reviewer at that point. He wrote this review, and uh, the kind of buzz went through the party that it wasn't all good. So Lindsay and I shared this limousine home, and I dropped her off. And then I went to the 72nd Street and Broadway newsstand to get a copy of the Times to read it for myself. And I remember being in the back of this limousine reading the New York Times review. And he gave Lindsay and I this lovely review, but it was so buried in all of the uh, his criticism, which was rancorous, that you couldn't lift the quote, which just made me laugh. I, w- I remember laughing in the back of the limousine really hard, like, oh my God, you know, he won't even let us have that one great quote. I went back and read the Frank Rich review from the New York Times. Um, and of course, yeah, he eviscerates the show. But um, Frank Rich was not the only critic <laughs> writing about Carrie. Um, and in fact, people always talk about the fact that Clive Barnes, who was the critic for the New York Post, um, loved it. I mean, he, he said it was uh, terrific, uh, that it was strong, effective, r- remarkably coherent, which is like completely at odds with what other critics said, um, you know, to say that it had this cathartic, you know, finale of biblical proportions. Um, you know, so there, there was a range of reviews. It is not the case. And, I, I, you know, when we talked to Ben Brantley, you know, he, he, he also talked about this, right? How lore builds up around the critical reception of shows. And when something closes, you know, it's, oh, well, it's because it got bad reviews. But when you actually go back and read them, you know, lots of times it's the case that no, actually, you know, there was a real uh, diversity of opinion. You know, it was, in fact, the biggest flop in musical theater history at that time. The show lost all $8 million of its investment, which even today, $8 million is, you know, it's a fair amount of money for a Broadway show. So it was a very expensive show for its time um, and, you know, was, was the biggest flop. Well, I think if it's time to move on to our list, you know, stepping back in time, we can talk about our first show, which also for its time was, was, uh, incredibly expensive. <laughs> and that is uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein's Allegro, which, as I alluded to at the top of the episode, um, you know, there, there are a couple uh, shows that, that run afoul of our 100 performance limit. And Allegro is, is our first show and the, 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 the first show that violates that rule. The show ran 315 performances on Broadway. But the reason why we felt like we had to start with this, with this show um, is because, uh, you know, it was the first flop of the rather nascent Rodgers and Hammerstein partnership uh, following the success of Oklahoma and Carousel. Um, and most importantly, it sort of put an end to the innovations of the Rodgers and Hammerstein revolution in terms of their willingness to experiment with form, um, which, you know, it was what was so notable about Oklahoma and Carousel to, you know, successful shows. And then, uh, Oscar Hammerstein in particular, this the show is his baby, um, you know, was really, really, really pushing audiences to to accept conventions that were beyond um, what they were, you know, sort of ready or willing to consume in 1947. Um, and the show, you know, it, it had a, a decent run, but, you know, it closed after only nine months, um, despite having the largest advance sale in the history of Broadway at that time. Um, and, um, you know, unlike most of their other shows, you know, it never had a movie and it's rarely done. It's never done. There is yeah. a, there is a fantastic, well, uh, CSC did a, a lovely yes. production of it a few years ago. There's a studio recording that's quite good that yes. I urge you to check out. Um, but no, you're right. And it's, it's, it's funny because it, it's been called the original 
concept musical or the mm -hmm. first concept musical. And yeah. it's interesting to think that these two men who broke the form or created the form or helped shape the form, however you want to define what they did with Oklahoma, then couldn't pivot. And I think it was too big. I think there was too much happening and they they didn't there was no way to streamline it and i also think that there was a mistake in having agnes demille also serve as director i think that right. on a, something as ambitious as they were trying to make allegro i think you needed two different people to guide that ship in terms of direction and choreography yeah absolutely and you know talking about the ambition of the show i mean i i always kind of bristle when people uh, lament, um, you know, movies being adapted to the stage because musical theater as a form is, you know, nine times out of 10, an adaptive form, right? And what, what Hammerstein was doing with Allegro was creating an original story, which is, it's really hard to create an original story for the first time in the form of a musical. And, um, and he was inspired, you know, sort of by the, 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 the aesthetic and the, and the, the theme of Thornton Wilder's Our Town. Um, and, and the show is about an ordinary man, Joseph Taylor Jr., who, you know, follows the footsteps of his, of his father uh, going on to being a, a doctor, um, and then is, you know, sort of tempted by fortune and fame. Um, and it's sort of an everyman story uh, that is rather humble, and yet, um, in in its original production, uh, it you know the, the show had basically no set, but a huge cast. I wrote these statistics down because I thought they were so interesting. Eighteen yeah. principals, twenty-one supporting players, twenty-two dancers, thirty-eight singers, which were billed sort of as a Greek chorus, which, as we've learned with Carrie, never a good idea to have never a Greek a chorus idea. in a musical no. ever, no. ever, ever. And there were thirty-five in the orchestra, which for those that, that time period was not unusual. Um, and then over three hundred costumes. Wow. I mean, talk about bloated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, and that's sort of what happened, right? Is that the the process was a little unruly. The material was experimental to begin with. And the budget exploded and the show just couldn't sustain itself when it wasn't Oklahoma, right? When it didn't have that same exuberance or that same romanticism, you know, of Carousel. When it was something that was a little bit more of a commentary on, you know, the on, on contemporary themes, right? The idea of... Of, of, of examining a man's life. I mean, you know, it, it, every person in the audience is called upon to think of themselves as Joseph Taylor Jr., right? And that's, you know, that's, that's ambitious. That's hard, that's hard to do today, let alone in 1947. Slice of life is hard to do. It really, oh, yeah. you, you, it, I think it's deceptive because it's, it's not a simple thing to pull off. I've got a couple of other factoids just because I find this so interesting. Stephen Sondheim was a production assistant on this production, but it also has my favorite all-time story of sort of the Rodgers and Hammerstein lore, and that is Lisa Kirk, who uh, would go on to have great success in Mac and Mabel and Kiss Me Kate. Um, she was uh, she was one of the principals. It was, I think, her first musical. And she's the one who sang The Gentleman is a Dope, which is the sort of the, one of the songs that people remember from that show. The gentleman is a dope. He isn't very smart. 
He's just a lug you'd like to hug and hold against your heart. When they were in New Haven, there was, we talked about, you know, not being much of a set, but there was this large curtain that moved across the stage and a track had to be built into the stage onto the floor, which had not been done before. And again, it was one of those ambitious things that proved to work against them because the curtain never really worked. But they had this track in the floor. Anyway, Lisa Kirk is singing her song. She trips in the track. She falls into the orchestra and she's caught by two cellists who hoist her back up onto stage and she never stops singing the entire time. Dope. Taxi. The gentleman is a dope. Hey, Jack. Oh, hell, I'll walk. That's a pro. That's a star. Well, moving on, um, you know, to the second show in this first category of Rodgers and Hammerstein flops, um, that would be 1955's Pipe Dream, which, you know, was the absolute biggest flop that Rodgers and Hammerstein ever uh, wrote and produced because in addition to being writers, they were also the producers, which was very unique in its time and still unique today. Um, it, like Allegro, it also arrived in New York with the biggest advance in Broadway history at that time, a whopping $1.2 million. Um, but the show was sort of doomed from the start. You know, it, it, it's, it's an adaptation of John Steinbeck's short novel, Sweet Thursday, um, which itself was written using characters from his earlier novel, Cannery Row. Um, which, and correct, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't Sweet Thursday written so that they could adapt it into a musical? When the wind got confidential and whispered through a tree, I knew that this would be a sweet Thursday. My head was up in the clouds, my heart was flapping its wings. I looked at the sky and wanted to try to do impossible things. What a day it's been for dreaming, my dreams have all come true. And if one I kept for you turns out to be right, it's gonna be a sweet Thursday night for me. The story is they wanted Steinbeck to write the book for mm -hmm. they wanted him to, to write the libretto and he didn't feel that it he tried and couldn't make it work so he wrote this short story Sweet Thursday for them to then adapt. Adapt, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, the musical itself tells the story of a marine biologist in Monterey, California, and his romance with a prostitute named Susie. And right there, that should tell you everything that it was it was about to doom the show, which is that in 1955, you know, they were attempting to write a musical about a, about a prostitute. And not only that, but Oscar Hammerstein was, you know, writing the book and lyrics. And you could say many things about Oscar Hammerstein. Um, uh, obviously, he's an incredible, incredible dramatist and one of the greatest innovators in musical theater, but he was a bit of a prude. Um, and the, the mores of the time wouldn't necessarily have allowed them to be as, uh, as honest with um, Susie's profession as, as they probably might have wanted to be. So they ended up sort of, you know, toning down 
a lot of the language of the book and the nature of her profession to make it somewhat ambiguous. And that itself, you know, just watered down the entire enterprise and left not much of a story, not much of a, you know, sort of compelling grist with which to dramatize a musical. Well, here you have a woman who is down on her luck, living on hard times. She's liver- she literally moves into a large pipe right. by the ocean, right? That's, yep. Did you know this? This, yeah, is, this, yeah. this is what happens, right? And she's a prostitute who works in a brothel, and they never. And the chorus girls who sing this wonderful song, "Sweet Thursday," with the madam, they never say what they are. They never say yeah. they're prostitutes. They never say it's a brothel. I believe they refer to them as flowers. The prostitutes are called flowers in the script, so it's very <laughs> confusing because you don't really know what you're watching. Yeah, yeah, and further complicating things, um, Richard Rogers uh, was fighting cancer throughout right. the tryout and the Broadway run, so he wasn't available to really be the the collaborator that um, Hammerstein needed. And you know, like any collaboration, the the magic was was in their synergy. And so, with with Rogers sort of sidelined uh, during the process, it's it just one more thing that that hampered the entire thing. I mean, the show closed after only seven months. It didn't recoup its $250,000 investment despite that, you know, $1.2 million advance. Um, it never played London. It never toured. It never had a film. Um, although we learned in our research uh, that in 1989, a film version of Pipe Dream was proposed starring the Muppets. Uh, Jim Henson was considering it. You know, he died in 1990. So in the last year of his life, one of the ideas on his desk was was turning Pipe Dream, the Rodgers and Hammerstein flop musical, into a Muppet movie. Look, I love the Muppets. I know you love the Muppets. Well, that's a terrible idea. Terrible I mean, that's a idea. bad yeah. idea. I mean, <laughs> what's worse than, than doing a story about prostitutes but never actually calling them prostitutes? Doing a story about prostitutes that are Muppets. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's just fucked up on so many levels. So um, many levels. So yeah. I'm glad that didn't happen. I will say about Pipe Dream before we move on. It yeah. is a glorious score. There's a fabulous recording. Encores did it in 2012. There's a beautiful yes. live recording. You really can get a sense of what they were trying to do. They didn't succeed. But the score, you listen to that overture, and it sounds like a big hit musical. One other thing that I think is so interesting, around the time that they were looking for their next show, which would become Pipe Dream, they were offered or in talks to talk about doing shows that would end up becoming My Fair Lady and Fiddler on the Roof. And they mm. they didn't they weren't interested in what however these conversations happened. They weren't interested in pursuing these projects, and yet they settled on Pipe Dream, which is I think kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. Well, I always I always imagine that's where um where Stephen Sondheim, you know, who was a protege of Oscar Hammerstein's, um, you know, got his whole, uh, they painted the lily line about um, My Fair Lady, you know, because the reason I believe that Oscar Hammerstein turned down My Fair Lady um, is because he didn't feel like he could improve upon 
the play, Pygmalion, right? And so he saw no need to musicalize it. Um, and uh, so I always thought that was funny. Well, one other thing. I'm not sure I would ever be ready for a Rodgers and Hammerstein fiddler on the roof. Like, <laughs> that's just, again, that's sort of like a Muppet prostitute. There's just something really wrong about that whole concept, as much as I love Rodgers and Hammerstein. Uh, well, speaking of Stephen Sondheim, uh, our second category is, uh, is devoted to Mr. Sondheim and two of his biggest flops. Uh, the first one being 1964's Anyone Can Whistle, which is probably Jamie's favorite musical ever. He's obsessed with it. He knows all the things. So I'm going to turn it over to Jamie. As my beloved Lee Remick said, Anyone Can Whistle was the happiest nine nights of her life. <laughs> um, it's... I have a hard time calling either Anyone Can Whistle or Merrily We Roll Along a flop because, you know, technically they are. I, that, that's, that's, you know, you can't question that. But they're both such interesting shows. And mm-hmm. Anyone Can Whistle, I think, is a magnificent score. Again, I think it suffers from this, you know, what was it George S. Kaufman said? Um, Satire is what closes on Saturday night. Mm-hmm. It, you know, the subject matter may have been a little too advanced for its time. I think the, the, the things that they were trying to accomplish perhaps were too ambitious. Well, I mean, it's another, you know, um, original story that, you know, was being musicalized for the first time, um, you know, in this form. And uh, Arthur Lawrence, who was the book writer, um, was also serving as the director. And that's been pointed out, um, you know, both contemporaneously and in the years since that, um, that he had bitten off a little bit more than he could chew by, by having both roles on this particular project because it was not an adaptation. Um, but it's, it is a satire, um, which, you know, closes on Saturday night, um, on, um, you know, conformity and, um, you know, the insanity of the so-called insane, right? So, uh, the show itself was, was very, um, very hard on its audience, right? I mean, it sort of turned a mirror onto its audience. Um, and, uh, in the years since, Stephen Sondheim has reflected on it and said that, yeah, you know, we were not, we were, we were perhaps poking the audience too much, right? That it became sort of obnoxious um, in 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 substance and in and in the way it was uh, produced. Uh, it's a three act musical, right? Which is also something that you really don't see much of anymore, or kind of ever. Um, and um, you know, it, people say that it, it wasn't sort of funny enough. Uh, to be, uh, you know, a comedy, um, but it wasn't really fun enough either to sustain its own commentary, and that's sort of what you need with satire, right? She's unpopular with the populace, unpopular with the populace, the popular with the populace, the popular with the populace. Everyone here hates me at length, probably lynch me if they have the strength, but me and my town, me and my we just want to be loved. We just want to be loved. We just want to be loved. Just love. A friendship is lovely and courtship's a fun. But give her a township. Township. Every time. What do you do? What do I want to do? 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 We're going to drown.
Well, I've seen Anyone Can Whistle a couple of times, but the the last time I saw it was when, again, when Encores did it with the marvelous yeah. Donna Murphy. And uh, that show hail. was, all hail, that show was, that that production was very successful and there was mm-hmm. talk about moving it and it was, you know, it was really well done. And I wonder how much of the success of that was entwined with the lore and legend of Stephen Sondheim, right? right. Because you're right. much more forgiving of the flaws of the show when it lives in this, you know, this, this magical world of cult status mm-hmm. um, and this marvelous recording. The, the cast album of Anyone Can Whistle is really a great recording. It's really yeah. a smart score. Um, it's the book that's problematic. And, and also, again, I, I might get in trouble for saying this, I don't think Arthur Lawrence was a particularly good director. I think he was a good book writer to a certain extent, but I, don't think, I, don't, I think in the hands of another director, this might have this worked. Right. Well, absolutely. And that, you know, that's the point that one of the producers made um, you know, on, on reflecting about the show. It was that you know, he was wearing two hats, and it's sort of impossible to see the show for what it is when you're also writing it. And how do you write and direct an original show? Not something that you're adapting where there's a source material, where there's an existing idea of it in the world, but an original show. Um, to be wearing both hats on a, you know, on a Broadway production is, is a lot. And, you know, clearly it proved to be um, too much. But, you know, the reason that we had to include it on this list, um, other than the fact that it, you know, is sort of famous, um, is that it really marked the emergence of Sondheim um, in his own sort of idiom, right? Um, he had done, a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum, which was the first musical he had done the music and lyrics for in 1962. And that was a hit, but that, you know, was sort of a, a classic musical comedy, right? It was very much playing on the sound of, of the way that musicals uh, up to that point um, had sounded. And with this, he got to do, in his own words, you know, what he loved doing for the first time, right? Which was, uh, you know, to write more romantically and more true to his own um, taste and, and style. And you listen to that cast album, and it's all there, right? The entire Sondheim sound is, for the first time, really cohesively 100% there. And it's thrilling, it is thrilling. It's also the show that brought Angela Lansbury to musical yes. comedy, yes. which would prove to be the gift that keeps on giving for Yes, people decades. think it was Mame, right? That Mame was her big thing, but no, 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 it was Anyone Can Whistle. No, and in fact, she never would have gotten Mame if she hadn't done Anyone Can Whistle. And, and as many of you probably know, she was not the first choice for Mame. In fact, her, her audition process for Mame was quite <laughs> arduous and, uh, yeah. and difficult, and she would never have gotten that part if it hadn't been for Jerry Herman. But that's another podcast. That's um, another podcast. Well, it's a complicated show, and yeah. uh, and I, you know, again, nobody sets out to make a flop, right? Well, speaking of that, um, the second Stephen Sondheim flop, um, which technically, I mean, I, you know, there's very few Stephen Sondheim musicals that have ever actually made money on Broadway, so you could say that, uh, you know, <laughs> most of them are flops. But um, the second, you know, big one that we're going to talk about is Merrily We Roll Along, as Jamie, you already uh, presaged. That was in 1981. Uh, had a whopping 16 performances at the Alvin Theater. Um, and uh, what's fascinating about this show is that, you know, kind of like Anyone Can Whistle, but even more so because in the years since there have been so many attempts, um, it's sort of like a show that's just been in perpetual development, right? And like every couple of years, somebody else has their idea for how they're going to fix, you know, air quotes, uh, uh, merrily roll along. And, you know, I've come to the conclusion 
after you know loving the score my entire adult life and seeing every production of it that I could, um, that you know what. I don't think it's solvable. And I think that's just the story of Merrily We Roll Along. And I, I've come to peace with it uh, in my well, own fandom. It's First and foremost, it's one of the great overtures of all time. Oh, I will, my God. I will die on that hill, and most yes. people will, most people would yes. die with me. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, I think the structure of the piece, of it moving backwards in time, sets you up for failure right away because mm-hmm. it begins with all of the friendships dissolving. It begin, you, you're suddenly asked to care about a group of angry, hostile, not particularly likable people, and you have no reason to care about them. And then, so it's, it's a tough setup, and yet it's this marvelous score. I actually love the show, and I, I think it works, but I acknowledge that I'm a twisted person and that that's <laughs> not actually accurate. Like, I, I, I intellectually understand that the show doesn't work, and I agree with you that it's not solvable it's not a fixable problem stop trying what is so um important about merrily roll along is that it sort of marked the end of the sondheim prince era Mm -hmm. right which had begun um 11 years earlier with company um which you know played at the same theater the alvin theater and had the same book writer george firth um but harold prince as director and producer uh, and stephen sondheim as a composer you know together their innovations their their partnership um, was one of the most successful and you know influential in the history of musical theater, um, and you know they both have remarked that um, you know part of the sort of noise around "Merrily We Roll Along" was this idea that people were sort of chomping at the bit to see them fail, right? Which is very much the temporal politics of 1981, right? But after you know being experimental and successful critically i mean if not you know financially with a range of shows from company to uh follies to a little night music to pacific overtures to sweeney todd right which was the last thing that they had done together to have that remarkable string of innovation and and you know praised work um you know there was a bit of a pent-up sort of who do these guys think they are right and then they of course handed uh both audiences and critics, a piece that was uh, easy to rip apart, right? Not only because of the the frustrating structure of the piece, um, but also its execution. I mean, Harold Prince has said that his his biggest mistake with Marley We Roll Along is that he didn't know what it should look like. And he's a, I mean, he was a very visual director. I mean, that sounds, you know, kind of silly to say, but I mean, are and all directors, right? But he, Harold Prince started with the set, right? If he if he couldn't see it, he couldn't do it. And this was the perfect example of a show that he never had a cohesive visual language for it. And that just trickled out, whether it was the costumes or the set or, you know, just the story, right? He he never sort of was able to figure out how he wanted to put this piece on stage. And Fatal Flaw, because of the success of Sweeney Todd, which had arrived on Broadway cold in 1979 they did not go out of town with marley we roll along and uh they learned a very hard lesson right by not going out of town because they had to experience all of the flaws of the piece in real time with a new york audience over the course of 44 previews uh which turned out to be quite painful charlie nothing's the way that it was I want it the way that it was. God knows things were easier then. 
everyone does Blames the way it is On the way it was On the way it never Ever was Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If Hal Prince can't see it, nobody right. can see it. Right? <laughs> it's as simple as that. And there have been many, many, many productions of Merrily. I've seen quite oh a my few gosh. of them. Yeah. And it's the same problem in all of them. And some of them are successful. I've enjoyed quite a few of them. But they never look good. Ever. There's yeah. never. And, and, and I think that maybe that has something to do with the actual show. If Harold Prince couldn't figure out the look of the show and the set for the show, nobody can. These titans of the theater at the height of their power couldn't pull it off. Well, as you said, we love to tear our idols down. It's interesting to yeah. think about what, let's just say it was moderately successful or successful enough that they went on to do more work together, what that would have looked like. Or yeah. also imagine a world where we don't have the Sondheim Lapine collaboration. Right. And we oh, don't get yes. Sunday in the park with George. We don't get um, uh, Into the Woods. Into or the Woods. Passion. Or Passion. Right. Like that's a whole nother. We don't get Assassins. We don't get, like, that's a whole nother world of, ah. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> so, sometimes these things happen for a reason. Um, yeah. Well, one one final thing I'll say on Merrily We Roll Along, uh, which is, you know, which we haven't touched on, is that um, rather than cast uh, adults to play uh, these characters who end up being, you know, basically teenagers in the end, they went with the opposite decision, right? And they cast young people, most of whom were making their professional debuts, um, to play these characters over the course of 30 years. So when you first see them, they're adults, but they were very clearly um, you know, teenagers. Um, and that's always been a complicating aspect of the show. Most times now it's done with adults who, you know, then play teenagers in the end. But director Richard Linklater is making a film version of it right now that is going to be filmed over the next 20 years. Um, they've already shot the first scene of it, uh, the first, you know, segment of it this past summer um, with, Be- with uh, Beanie Feldstein, Ben Platt, and Blake Jenner. So perhaps... That'll be the solution to Merrily We Roll Along, which is to have the same actors literally aging over the course of a 20-year shoot. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's a problem. That's always a problem with any 
piece of theater that spans yeah. 20 years or spans a great length of time. You're, you're, you're either doomed to look silly as an adult playing a child or as a child trying to play an adult. It, mm-hmm. it, it never really, it's, it's hard to make that successful. Unless you're Celia Keenan-Bolger. She was marvelous. I will. She I was will, incredible. I will give her that. And yeah, I will yeah. say, you know, if 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 you look at that, if you look at all of the sort of recent productions, the London revival, the encores, that the encores casting was the most successful. Those were the that was the a was also wonderful actors, but they were sort of in the middle of the ages. They weren't quite mm. youngsters, and they weren't quite you know, middle-aged. So they, yeah. they straddled those worlds a little bit better. And then Celia Keenan-Bolger can do anything. Right. Yep. Okay. Well, moving on to our third slot. Um, we, we could not talk about flops without talking about the show um, because before Carrie, there was Kelly. Yes, there was. In fact, Kelly has the great notoriety of being the first poster on the flop wall at Joe Allen. Uh, I love that. That's so amazing. <laughs> the show that began the flop wall at Joe Allen. Well, there's an interesting argument that, you know, when you think about flops and you think about the legend of a flop musical and why they live on in infamy, I think there's a lot of reasons why. We're discussing many of them. There's great scores or great moments or great performances, um, and, and that, that grabs you. But I also feel that Joe Allen is partially responsible for for totally. the the lore and the legend of many of yes. these flops because so many people who go to the theater dine at Joe Allen and so for decades people have been seeing these posters on the walls there and they get interested in and it, it just helps create and perpetuate the myth of a flop and the legend of a flop. So I want to do a little hat tip to Joe Allen because I think yeah. we wouldn't really be talking about some of these shows, Kelly in particular, if it didn't live on the wall there. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, the thing about Kelly is it had a single performance that is to say it opened and closed on the same night. Um, and that is, you know, rare throughout history. I mean, I, in my own little, you know, cursory review. I mean, I, there's only like about 20 musicals in Broadway history that have opened or you know, recent Broadway history that have opened and closed on opening night. And, um, you it's know, it's increasingly was, rare. These oh, days. and of course. Yeah. Now, yeah, now it never happens. Um, uh, you know, but it was also, you know, the biggest flop in Broadway history at that time, uh, with a budget of $650,000, which was unheard of in, you know, 1965 to do a musical for that much money. I mean, you know, in 1971, Hal Prince did Follies for like $750,000. And that was like, oh my God, you're spending $750,000 on a musical. How could you do that? Right. This was, you know, seven years earlier and it was almost that amount. Right. Um, and, you know, this is a show, just to give a little a context for it, um, it's based off a true story of a man named Steve Brody, who in 1886 claimed to have jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge and survived. Um, so this, uh, you know, fictionalized version of it centers around uh, a character named Hop Kelly, who is uh, a daredevil busboy, um, and some, some gamblers in the Bowery who are trying to prevent him from uh, jumping from the Brooklyn Bridge and surviving. Um, and there's all sorts of hijinks around that. Uh, apparently, in the end, he triumphs. He jumps off the bridge, and he lives. What a strange subject matter for I'm, a musical. I, I, I stopped listening a while ago. <laughs> I, 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 it's just it's it, it's incredible to me that this was the subject of a musical. 
right? Yeah, wild. And, you know, it was written um, by uh, uh, Moose Charlap, which is a great name, and Eddie Lawrence, um, who, you know, together wrote the, the music and then the book and lyrics. Um, and, um, you know, the, the show was clearly in trouble when it was in Boston. So the producers brought in some new writers, including uh, uh, Mel Brooks. Um, and it, it erupted into this legal battle where uh, Charlap and Lawrence were so upset with the changes that were being made to their show that they filed suit in the New York's uh, New York Supreme Court seeking an injunction to prevent the play from even opening. Um, and uh, the judge ordered arbitration and they were threatening to sue for damages and all this was going on. And then the show opened and closed on one night. And so, it, you know, the, <laughs> there was no need to, to continue the litigation. But New York Times theater critic Howard Taubman, the line that started his review, uh, I have to read it because it's it's such a classic, like, bitchy New York Times uh, dig. Uh Quote, Ella Logan was written out of Kelly before it reached the Broader's Theater Saturday night. Congratulations, Miss Logan. <laughs> well. <laughs> and doesn't that just say it all? It uh, does. <laughs> amazing. All righty. Well, let's move on to the next season in 1966. Um, another uh, infamous, famous uh, Broadway flop, Breakfast at Tiffany's. I love this flop. I love this flop so, <laughs> You're so a big, big fan. Yeah. much. Well, it's amazing to me that it was considered the most anticipated show of the 1966-1967 Broadway season. A season that included cabaret, by the way. Yes, but, but also cabaret wasn't something people were expecting much of. Of course. Right? Yeah, because, yeah. because, you know, the, the issue word stories were popular, but they wasn't part of the cultural zeitgeist. Breakfast at Tiffany's was a huge novella and then mm-hmm. an even bigger film. So it oh, was yeah. a really, you know, really, really hot property. And then you add... Uh, Mary Tyler Moore, who was not quite Mary Richards, but she was Laura Petrie, right? So she was yeah, a television yeah. star at, in 1966, just hot off of the Dick Van Dyke show. So there was a lot of, you know, interest in this show. And boy, is it a stinker. I can see on paper, Mary Tyler Moore is an interesting idea, right? Because the thing people misunderstand is that the Holly Golightly, again, a prostitute, of the novella (laughs) is a hard, embittered woman. The Holly Golightly, not ever called a prostitute in the film, is Audrey Hepburn. And what they did was they cast a woman who America thought of as an Audrey Hepburn and then tried Mm. to make her this hard-as-nails hooker. And it just, like, you don't want to hear Mary Tyler Moore swear. You don't want to hear her talk about sex. Certainly not in 1966. I mean, it's, it's, it's bad. (laughs) And talk about troubles. Um, You know, they, it was originally, um, Abe Burroughs project who was writing the book. Um, and Abe Burroughs, of course, had written Guys and Dolls and How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. He had a real, you know, proven track record of taking, uh, you know, uh, books and turning them into musicals. Um, and uh, he was replaced. Uh, David Merrick brought in Edward Albee, right? Like, who was in the time, you know, at the time, you know, one of the hottest playwrights, of course, but also known for, you know, really cutting work, right? That was not, that did not necessarily lend itself to the musical theater, to the musical comedy. Um, And of course that didn't work out. Uh, So he was replaced by Joseph Anthony, who uh, was also the director. So, you know, that alone just tells you all you need to know, right? And crazily enough, the 
the score was was written for the first version of the book, right? And as they brought in new writers, they never really changed the score. So Bob Merrill wrote the music and lyrics. He wrote a rather conventional, you know, classic Broadway musical score. And then Edward Albee was, you know, was writing the book, right? So <laughs> you can imagine that there was probably just such a clash of tone and style happening in this show. Well, I can tell you about that. I'd like to yeah. know which one of the three men wrote this line. <laughs> so there's a moment where Holly and her boyfriend, her love interest, Jeff, are having a discussion about their emotions or their feelings. And he says, I care for you. And she says, well, that would be a great comfort to me in the discotheques if I'm allowed to have emotions. (laughs) And then he says, go to hell. And she says, I might just do that. And then they sing a song called Who Needs Her? Who needs her? Who needs her? If I want to get my brain really scrambled, I don't need her. If I'm looking for a war, there's war in Africa, chaos in Asia, crime in the streets. You're not the only natural catastrophe. Sorry, sweet. You're right. It's a it's a, a huge <laughs> it's a jumble mess. of yeah, emotions. Yeah. Something else that's interesting of the soundboard recording that I don't ever remember hearing, but I would yeah. listen because I never listened to the overture because the overture is really bad. Um, but I, I've listened to the overture a few times now, and it's comforting to know that you can hear the audience talking throughout the entire overture. <laughs> In fact, you can hear the audience talking through most of the book scenes, and oh, wow. I can only imagine they're not saying good things. Oh my gosh. Well, um, the show had four previews at the Majestic Theater and then never opened. Producer David Merrick placed an ad in the New York Times announcing that he would shut down the production, quote, rather than subject the drama critics and the public to an excruciatingly boring evening. I love that. I love that so much. In fact, we had Priscilla Lopez on our show this year, who Mm -hmm. was was in the company at Breakfast at Tiffany's, and she told us on her show that that was the single thing people wanted to talk about the most with her when she was just after that show doing auditions. She'd go in for an audition, and they'd stop her and ask her, you know, what was it like? Tell us stories. Yeah, but we learned from her that by the time the show got to Broadway, they had cut the ensemble. Right. So she never even really got to make her Broadway debut in Memphis at Tiffany's. Uh, I mean, I guess her name was probably listed in the playbill, but... uh, (laughs) Yeah, and she's she's listed on... um, Yeah, yeah. Broadway database. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Well, as David Merrick might agree, time is money, and I think this is a good place to leave it for now. And Mm -hmm. let's revisit... Flops part two next week, where we're going to dig into why you should never do a sequel. Never. And also, you know, vampires visit Broadway. (laughs) So check back in next week for Flops part two. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. When everything's hopelessly gray, you'll notice I'm youthfully gay. There isn't a single right thing I can do, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Rob here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. At this difficult time, please consider making a donation to the Actors Fund at actorsfund.org. 
The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Charles Van Kirk. You can find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday. What comfort it is to have always known That if they should catch me, I won't go alone I'll always give credit where credit is due I've got you to lean on We've got you to lean on I've got you to lean on, darlings, you Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.